Listen and follow the Left Wing Rugby podcast with me, Will Slattery and Luke Fitzgerald. As far as I can see, I always want to get in the Irish team. And that should be every young player's dream and ambition in this country. And if you're playing in a place where you're not going to get the opportunities in the big games, that they're the ones that get you picked. They are the ones, the Champions Cup games are the ones that get you picked. You need to be playing in a team and starting in a team for those games. It's as simple as that if you want to play in the Irish team. Every week on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. On the latest episode of Real Health with me, Carl Henry, I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Anne-Marie O'Dwyer chatting all things the psychiatry of cancer. I want to say that it's very common to be very distressed, to have a very prominent psychological response to cancer, that they are not alone, that lots of other people feel in that way and that it's important for them to have information. Information is power, but it has to be the right information. As ever, we're available on all podcast platforms. You're listening to the Indo Daily, but first. When I got out to the Wicklow Mountains, when I came to the end of the line, I, I felt this sinking feeling in the pit of my stomach. I'm Nicola Talent, and every week you can hear stories about criminals, drugs, and the sins of the underworld on my podcast, Crime World. This was a stitch up from start to end. I talk to those who get up close and personal with gangsters mobsters and notorious criminals. They have taught of every conceivable way of disguising cocaine. Crime World is available wherever you get your podcasts. Today on the Indo-Daily, from the KGB to the presidency, we examine the man who has dominated Russian politics since the turn of the millennium, Vladimir Putin. Russian President Vladimir Putin broke weeks of silence on Ukraine. Russia's concerns were basically ignored, Putin said. The United States' most important goal is to contain Russia. That's the thing. In this sense, Ukraine itself is just a tool to achieve this goal. This can be done in different ways. One of them is to draw us into some armed conflict. As the military build-up on the Ukraine border heightens tensions with the West, how much do we really know about Putin's game plan? Now, after a flurry of diplomatic talks yesterday, Russian President Vladimir Putin has suggested further talks could help diffuse tensions over Ukraine. I'm Fiona Sheehan, and joining me today is Neil Robinson, Professor of Politics at the University of Limerick, to tell us more about the man and the myth. Neil Robinson... Vladimir Putin, very familiar to the world now as as he's effectively been uh, heading up the operation uh, in Russia since the turn of the, of the millennium. But what do we know about him? Where, where did he come from? Uh, how did he emerge on the stage? Because he's very much a guy who who's born uh, in the shadow of Russia as experience uh, in World War II. Yeah, absolutely. Um... Putin comes from a, a, a relatively ordinary family. Um, the only sort of distinguishing um, feature of his family before uh, before himself was that uh, his great grandfather, his grandfather, uh, was a, a cook for Lenin and Stalin. But um, he's not from a, a, a famous family. He's not from uh, the Russian elite. Um, uh, he was born in Leningrad, now St. Petersburg. Uh, in 1952, he was the youngest of three sons, but he's the only son 
um, who 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 survived. He's he he was an only child, effectively, because his 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 two brothers um, predeceased his his birth. So he did well at school, went to university, did a law degree. Um, you know, sort of not uncommon. But then he joined the KGB. At that point, you, you you know, sort of his his life begins to sort of uh, gain the shape uh, that it's that it's had, um, you know, sort of up to now. That's the sort of the event that um, that sets him on the path uh, eventually to power. But there was nothing exceptional about him as a KGB agent. Um, you know, sort of he briefly worked in counterintelligence inside Russia, uh, and then moved to the uh, the the first directorate of the KGB that dealt with espionage abroad but you know sort of he was a relatively low status officer uh in the kgb serving in east germany and and not doing anything particularly interesting or particularly heroic very low ranking so i mean we're, we're not talking the kind of guy who's going to feature in a james bond movie about the, during cold war times here he he's pretty much middle ranking management almost at that point Pretty much. I mean, you know, sort of, um, he apparently spent most of his time sort of reading newspapers and gleaning information from those and uh, liaising with the East German secret police. I mean, not very exciting work at all. You know, not one of the glamour postings to London or Geneva or or, or Washington or New York. Uh, A a very sort of um, menial uh, position within the KGB's foreign service, really. And then the 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 Berlin Wall collapses. Uh, we have his his return to 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 Mother Russia, which is is dramatically changing at the time. And again, middle management man starts to to rise up through the ranks. Yeah, not immediately. I mean, he's he's spoken about what a shock the collapse of the Soviet Union was. Um, he personally um, was in um, Dresden in 1989 when the East German regime was was falling apart, and you know, supposedly uh, confronted demonstrators who wanted to sort of storm the, the the KGB building. So that was traumatic. He went back. He said that you know, sort of, he had difficulty making ends meet at first. He had to drive a taxi. Um, uh, but then he he gets a job as uh, the um, the head of the external relations department of the mayor's office in what has now become St. Petersburg for a democratic politician called Anatoly Sobchak. Uh, and it's there that he begins to sort of rebuild his fortune because um, that's a post that, you know, sort of allows him to make a lot of connections in business uh, and allows him to do a lot of favours for people. Uh, and he begins to accumulate um, political connections and he begins to accumulate um, some some money as well. Um, so his life gradually begins to sort of change. He's, he's really sort of coming out of his shell, uh, although things go wrong uh, when Sobchak loses uh, the post of mayor in the election in 96, um, and he moves to Moscow and, you know, sort of moves into the presidential administration. It's one where he sort of begins to sort of come to the notice of um, what was called at the time Yeltsin's family. Now, that's not just Yeltsin's biological family, which is relatively small, he only had one daughter, uh, but the sort of the, the people who are around Yeltsin who um, were used 
using uh, his his office to enrich themselves and to uh, set themselves up as the new Russian elite. Um, so his 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 fortunes are a little bit up and down, but he's gradually sort of, you know, coming to the notice of more and more prominent people and gradually making more and more connections and developing uh, his own circle of, of 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 friends and clients. A quite rapid rise from there to actually becoming president of 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 uh, Russia uh, within effectively four years at the turn, turn of the millennium. Yeah, it's incredibly quick. Yeltsin makes him the head of the uh, Federal Security Service. Uh, and he's in that post uh, for a year, obviously seeing a lot of Yeltsin. And then in August 1999, uh, Yeltsin uh, makes him prime minister. Uh, and then uh, uh, in the end of December 1999, uh, Yeltsin resigns uh, as president. And uh, when the Russian president resigns or if he dies in office, then uh, the prime minister becomes the acting president until elections can be held. So uh, he sort of really emerges out of, 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 of nowhere in a couple of years. You know, sort of he was not really particularly on anybody's radar as a prominent figure like successor to Yeltsin, uh, but from the FSB, from the security service to the prime ministership, to the presidency uh, in the space of, 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 of a year and a bit, really. It's a, it's a very rapid rise. Looking back uh, now, to almost 22 years on, is it fair to say he has transformed Russia, taking it from from that period of time when it was at such uh, a, a low ebb in in at the end of the breakup of, uh, of the Soviet Union uh, to where they are now? They, they've reemerged as an economic and military powerhouse. Can can we credit that to him, or was that just a, a natural evolution of the recovery of the country? It's a bit of both in some ways. I mean, he certainly transformed the country politically. Putin puts manners on both economic and uh, regional leaders uh, very quickly uh, in 2000 uh, and begins to build up um, his his political power uh, to the point where, you know, sort of um, instead of a chaotic um, uh, regime, as we had under Yeltsin, we have a relatively well-ordered political machine that runs Russia. Economically, the country changes massively as well. Um, you know, sort of uh, the Yeltsin period was a period of uh, of, of, of massive economic downturn. Uh, but that ends um, uh, under Putin. But Putin's responsibility for that is, is another matter. The prime responsibility for, for economic growth in Russia uh, in the 2000s is uh, the boom in energy prices that begins um, uh, in about 2003. And uh, and that is responsible uh, for the large part, the largest part of Russia's economic growth uh, under Putin. So um, he bears some responsibility for changing the political system, less responsibility for changing the economic uh, fortunes of Russia, uh, but his popularity 
uh, is very much dependent on people crediting him uh, with um, uh, uh, being responsible for economic growth and economic change. change. And there is a, a massive cult of personality uh, around him, and and uh, he has he has cultivated this myth around himself as a as a, a robust, uh, strong figure heading up the country. Oh yeah, from day one, his first act was to to fly down to Chechnya in a fighter plane uh, uh, and hand out uh, awards to soldiers who were engaged in the Second uh, Chechen War. So that's a very different kind of you know sort of uh, macho image from from day one. It's half macho. It's half the. Um, action man figure riding horses uh, without his shirt on, um, you know, sort of uh, um, diving uh, for uh, ancient relics in the Black Sea, uh, and half a caring personality. So there's lots of pictures of him with dogs and um, Siberian tigers, and uh, you know those kind of pictures. So he's 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 strong but sensitive is the image that they want to uh, they want to portray you know sort of he has a sort of uh, uh, a tough side but also a sort of a fatherly side uh, in Russian propaganda and yet there's there's nothing sensitive at all about the manner in which he deals with with dissidents give us a flavor of of how people have been dealt with like Alexei Navalny uh, and and other dissidents who who have left the country well, yeah, he's 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 got a um, or, or the regime uh, certainly has got a, a violent side. Um, lots of critics have been silenced either by uh, execution uh, or by uh, imprisonment or by being forced into exile. So, journalists who have been associated with opposition um, who have been uh, shot on the street uh, or poisoned, like um, they tried to poison Navalny, are poisoned like Alexander Litvinenko uh, in London, obviously with uh, a radioactive isotope, polonium. Um, so, you know, sort of uh, some of this seems to be attributable to people um, uh, very close to uh, to Putin. Uh, and, you know, sort of it's become a very dangerous uh, place for, for Putin's critics. Lots of people have been locked up for demonstrating, etc. Inequality, huge in Russia, even compared to the United States, the European country, no opportunities at all, no future for the people. Putin is stealing their future. Why do you think there has been so much focus then on Alexei Navalny as opposed to anybody else? Uh, Navalny really kind of um, made himself a, uh, a, a an opposition leader who people could identify with in the West, uh, and therefore who you know sort of gained a prominence uh, in the Western imagination that the other leaders simply didn't have. Um, so when they tried to, to to kill him and poisoned him, and then of course you know he was flown to Germany, so um, you know sort of uh, it was it was it was easy for people to get details of the poisoning. There was simply just more information there for people to latch on to. Uh, uh, and this narrative's sort of grown up that, you know, sort of Navalny is is Putin's biggest critic and Putin and the greatest threat to Putin. If you look at, you know, sort of uh, how Russians view Navalny, uh, he's not uh, particularly supported according to any Russian uh, opinion poll. He's not necessarily uh, seen as being particularly credible by a lot of Russians. Uh, there's a bit of a sort of 
uh, cult of Navalny, if you like, to mirror the cult of Putin. On the international stage, one one does get the, the sense that Putin has a game plan, but it's just the West trying to figure out what what is the that that game plan. He does speak effectively perfect English. Uh, we've seen examples of this with the with appeals around the the World Expo and the, and the Winter Olympics. But in all this time, Russia has not hosted the World Expo, not once. Surely, time has come to change this. He chooses not to, presumably for for domestic audience uh, consumption. How does he approach international relations, and and does he care what how he is perceived uh, in the West and on the global stage? I don't think he's particularly concerned with his his image as somebody who's belligerent uh, uh, in the West, because uh, that's you know sort of uh, a source of his domestic appeal. Um, that you know Russia has been uh, made visible again in international politics. In terms of his having a, a plan, that's you know sort of uh, a, a more difficult one. Um, you know, the, 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 there has been this image uh, in the Western media that, you know, sort of Putin is this, you know, sort of uh, great international strategist mastermind. Um, a phrase that was used a couple of years ago was that, you know, sort of uh, Putin was playing chess whilst Western leaders were playing checkers. For, uh, this idea of the kind of the cunning, calculated, uh, cold-blooded Russia. In fact, you know, sort of, I, I don't really think that's, that's true. Um, he has free frequently been uh, opportunistic rather than calculating. Um, he's frequently not being able to see uh, the outcome of his actions in a way that uh, a chess grandmaster, uh, you know, really should. You know, chess, great chess players plan several moves ahead, right? Um, you know, sort of Putin reacts very often uh, in the moment and, you know, sort of then deals with the consequences later. Um, so it, it's not really the case that, you know, sort of there is a great Putin plan, uh, except um, that, you know, sort of he wants Russia to be noticed and he wants to secure what he sees as Russia's intrinsic interests, which is um, its ability to uh, be the dominant voice in the former Soviet space. So in Ukraine, in Kazakhstan, uh, in the Caucasus, Russia's interests um, uh, should be paramount and the involvement of other countries in those regions, whether it's economically uh, or in terms of, of security alliances, uh, should be secondary to Russia's satisfying its wants in the first instance. So his plans are, are relatively limited and insofar as he is... Um, a global player, you know, involving himself in Syria, um, you know, threatening naval exercises uh, off the south coast of Ireland. Um, those things uh, are designed to give him leverage uh, in the areas that he, can, is, he really is concerned about, which are the areas next door to Russia, what he sees as Russia's historical sphere of influence. Um, uh, but, you know, sort of even there, he's not necessarily always strategic. You know, sort of he 
follows events. Um, you know, sort of, uh, he had no plan to seize Crimea in 2014, for example, until uh, the regime that su he supported uh, in Kiev fell apart uh, uh, and, you know, his hand was forced. So, um, you know, sort of we can make too much about his, of his strategic genius, I think. Sometimes. What about uh, his influence on a, on a wider level? We, he is being partly credited uh, in, in some quarters with actually influencing such a pivotal moment uh, in the Western world, and that is the election of a, a US president. Do you think that's, is that, is that played, overplayed, uh, do you feel, uh, or was that part of an overall plan to, to prove Russia's strength? There was certainly Russian involvement in that election. I mean, you know, sort of um, uh, hacking, leaking of emails, um, you know, sort of uh, disinformation campaigns, those kinds of things. You know, the Russians played a part. It's really difficult to say that that was determinant, that, you know, sort of that the, the Putin got Trump elected. Uh, they have an interest in making democracy look chaotic because um, that allows them to say, uh, you know, sort of um, uh, a democracy without controls. Um, you know, sort of uh, is 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 a bad political system. You're better off with you know democracy that is managed uh, like our democracy is. Well, you know, it's so managed that it no longer exists as democracy, but that's the line that they, they give to, to the Russian people. If you go the Western route, you'll get chaos. So they have an interest in, in, in chaos in a sense, but, you know, sort of they've not necessarily been able to um, gain much in foreign policy terms from that um, uh, because, of course, uh, every time you give money to, you know, sort of uh, the French right, for example, you just end up annoying the people who win the elections, um, uh, uh, like Macron, uh, and, you know, sort of, uh, and then you have to deal with the specific diplomatic fallout of that. That was Neil Robinson, Professor of Politics at the University of Limerick. I'm Fiannan Sheehan, and today's episode of the Uno Daily was produced by Mary Carroll, researched by Tabitha Monaghan, with sound by Gavin Hennessy. Archive clips from NBC, CNN and BBC. If you enjoy the Indo Daily, don't forget to like, follow and leave us a review.